0: Okay, today is May the 11th, 2010. Tomorrow is going to be our first Wednesday night young people class. And I know I'm not talking to the young people. (laughs) Young at heart. But I do solicit your prayers for tomorrow night so that uh, you can lay uh, artillery barrage that uh, will help us get off to a a good start. So now let us uh, prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are ever faithful and Your grace is always sufficient. It's so easy for us to forget these permanent things, be frightened, get distracted. But when we're here and we're concentrating on Your Word, we are grounded, stabilized, secure. We pray that You will help us to Focus on Your Word and not be distracted, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16. Actually, it's verse 16b. In the middle of verse 16 or thereabouts, we end one sentence and begin another one. It's a fairly short one. If you're looking in your Bible, you'll find out that it starts with a conjunction, a word of contrast. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. That's a short sentence, isn't it? But it takes quite a bit of explaining. One reason is because the translators couldn't agree exactly on how to translate it. I have three different translations here. The top one there has to do with uh, is our New American Standard Version, which is the one that we use. And it is translated, But wrath has come... Upon them to the utmost. Then you have the New International Version says, The wrath of God has come upon them at last. And then the Net Bible, New English translation, says, But wrath has come upon them completely. So right off the bat, we start thinking, Okay, this must not be real easy to translate because we have so many different translations there were a few others translations I could have included but they were pretty close to some of the ones that are here you'll notice that it says uh, has come but the wrath has come upon them to the utmost and this is an a verb it's the aorist active indicative and I say that it's typical you'll see it even in the English In all translations, you see that verb translated, has come. The aorist tense is essentially nondescript there. It's just stating the fact that it came. And it's in the indicative mood, which means it's a reality. So it's hard to determine what what, what wrath Paul has in mind. And I have a few possibilities for us to contemplate. Was <clears throat> he speaking of the fifth cycle of discipline that was to be admi- admi- administered to Israel in 70 A.D.? Now, who, first of all, who, who was he talking to? I probably should have started and explained a little more. I'm kind of throwing us right into the, the, where we left off last time. If you let's let's look at our Bibles. I, I should have done this, I guess, to start with. But I see now that it's important that we do it. Look in your Bibles, First Thessalonians chapter two, verse fourteen. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from The Jews. So he's talking about these believers, his new converts, suffered at the hands of their countrymen, which were Gentiles, pagan Gentiles. So he's introducing the thought that there were those who were antagonistic to God and his word and to new believers. And then in verse 15, he starts to describe these people who both killed the Lord Jesus. And the prophets. See, that verse 15 is linked to the Jews, the last word in verse 14. And now it's carrying on that thought, talking about the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. What did I say? That's a, that's a figure of speech there called Lytotes. God was not only unhappy with him. I guess you could say he was mad as hell. He, that's the, it's just the opposite of just having a casual displeasure. And then he goes on verse 16 talking about these same people hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. Now that's what we had prior to verse 16. And we actually ended last time talking about Daniel chapter 8, verse 20 through 25. And remember, it was talking about uh, filling up the, the, the wrath of God. In other words, God holds off on executing justice on people who are reprobates, those who have re- rejected Him and His Word. He always gives them a period of grace. And that that negativity, that evil has to build up to a point to where when he does execute justice, no one can look and say, well, maybe he pulled the trigger a little too fast. That's the idea in filling up the measure of their fathers, which was uh, evil. Now in verse, the new sentence in verse 16, for what has come upon them... But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. So you see who the them is now. That puts it more in context. So now we're focusing our attention as to what wrath. Paul had some kind of wrath in mind. So I pose the question because it could be several things. Was he speaking of the fifth cycle of discipline that was to be administered to Israel in 70 A.D.? You all know that's when Israel went out as a nation. And was that the wrath that he was talking about? These unbelievers? He said that the wrath has come to the utmost. Or we saw one that says that wrath has come completely whatever it was. Is that what he had in mind? Well, possibly. Or was he speaking as if it had already happened because it was so certain that it was coming? You see, sometimes the Bible does that. They'll speak of something in the future And yet, they'll talk as if it has already happened because that's a historical present, sometimes they call it. Even though this is an heiress, they, they speak as if it's already happened, even though it's yet future because it's so certain, it's as if it's already happened. Is that what he had in mind? Here's another question. Was he referring to the wrath of God that abides on unbelievers? These were unbelievers. Is that what he was talking about? John 3:36, you should know this verse. He that believeth on the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe, the wrath of God abideth on him. Is that the wrath that he was talking about here? Well, there's another possibility. Was he referring to the fact that time had run out on the Jews who had been temporarily set aside and a new dispensation of the church had begun? Is that what he was talking about? Certainly the Jews have experienced wrath or has had for two thousand years nearly before they became a nation again in nineteen forty eight. Is that what he was talking about, that God had taken his chosen people and because of their stiff-necked rebellion had set them aside and now the wrath was coming upon them? and It was going to remain on them for nearly 2,000 years? Is that what he had in mind? Or yet there's another scenario. Was he using a consummative heiress emphasizing the conclusion of something with the tribulation in mind? Could he have been referring to that? Because he's already been talking about uh, the wrath to come in uh, chapter 1. Remember that? I, we went over the that that in detail. We were pointing to the context and all the evidence would show that he was talking about the tribulation that was in view there was the wrath to come. Is that what he's talking about there? There's a lot of questions there, isn't it? Well, which one is it? Or did he have all the above in mind? (laughs) One more yet. Did he have all the above in mind? Well, if you can't say for certain, I can't either. I don't know which one of these he had in mind. Certainly there was some kind of wrath. Let's go back to to the Scripture again. But the wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Wrath of God has come upon them at last, but wrath has come upon them completely. Whichever translation you take, uh, we've given you the different scenarios of which type of wrath was coming. But we can know one thing for absolutely certain, even though we might not be able to pinpoint exactly what Paul had in mind with regards to that wrath. We know that God is just. And those who interfere with the gospel, those who peddle Satan's lies, are certainly going to be dealt with. They don't get by with it. God gives them grace, but there is a time where He acts. He does that on individuals, and He also does that collectively to nations. And so I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I can tell exactly which one it is and be able to specify why, but I can't. I don't know which one it is. Or whether he had some of the above scenarios in mind, or maybe in in one sense he had them all in mind. That litotes is important because when he says that God was not pleased with them, he's really saying that he was livid and that they're going to get their come up in in God's time and in God's way. That's essentially what I'm seeing from this. So if you have any insight that you can say, oh, I know it's which one of the four or five scenarios this is talking about, then you can clue me in because I can't tell. But we can glean from this that God is just and His grace doesn't last forever. And those who defy him are certainly going to pay a price. Paul was emphasizing the gravity of hindering the gospel or giving a false gospel. And then I have a scripture there. Before any of you go to it, anybody have an idea what that scripture is? In Galatians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, I'll give you a hint. Verse 9 and 10 are essentially the same verse. He's repeating what he said in verse 9 in verse 10. Anybody got an idea? emphasize the gravity of hindering or giving a false gospel? Remember, if I or even an angel, anyone that gives a gospel contrary to the gospel that we've given... Let him be anathema. Let him be cursed to hell. In verse 10, he says, just in case you didn't get it. Let's skip it again. Let's go there. So you'll have the visual as well as the audio in your soul there. Turn back a few books to Galatians. you know that... Galatians is probably one of the strongest caustic epistles in the whole New Testament. And it was one of the earliest also. So verse nine. And as we have said before, so I say again now if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. I also include a little bit of what was in verse 8. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, I say again, if any man preaches to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. Maybe it threw you off because I gave you Galatians 1, 9, and 10. and Actually, it should be been Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. What I'm demonstrating here, and what I think Paul is trying to convey, is the gravity, the seriousness of anyone who would try to hinder the gospel. The the most strong condemnation in the entire Bible is reserved for that particular heinous sin. Are there people today that hinder the gospel? all over the woods are loaded with false teachers those who would lead you astray those who are actually grace haters so nothing there's nothing new under the Sun everything continues and just as there were those who would lead people new converts in Christ astray so there is now also so now we go to verse 17. Verse 17 is a a verse in its own. We go by verses, remember. But we, brethren, see, we have this conjunction again. uh, It's a contrast. He was talking about false teachers and those who would hinder the gospel. But now he's going to talk about himself and his companions. And he says, but we, talking about, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. But we, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were are all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Paul is probably, in this epistle, is showing more emotion, more affection than nearly any other place. He loved the Thessalonian believers. He wasn't able to stay with them that long. He was forced to leave. And he his mind and thoughts kept going back to them. He was concerned because he wasn't able to take them as far as he would like to to maturity. So he's thinking about them. And there were those. Let me set the, the, the stage a little bit. Um, they were facing adversity. Remember, we just saw that verse. They were struggling just like the, the, the uh, believers in Jerusalem were struggling. They were being persecuted. And it's very easy for a new convert to uh, be weak and succumb. So uh, Paul is showing his affection to let them know he did not just bail out on them. He would love to come back and see them face to face. There's nothing he would like more than to give them further training And that's what he's trying to convey in these verses. So now Paul changed the subject. He turned their attention to how much he missed seeing them. He wanted to make sure that they knew that he hadn't abandoned them. Circumstances outside of his control prohibit them from returning. Remember what that was. It was the religious Jews that were trying to kill him. It was the Thessalonian believers themselves that urged him and his company to leave for fear that they might lose their lives. That was the conditions. So it says, having been taken away from you, he was reminding them that he did not leave by choice, but by force. In fact, the NIV and the ESV uses the phrase, torn from you. Not just leaving, but he was torn away from them. Rather than just taken away from you, and we saw this in Acts chapter 17, verse five through ten. Do y'all remember going over that recently, or do y'all need to hear it? Y'all need to go there. Okay, when I, huh? That's what I started to say. (laughs) When I see blank stares, I say we better go there. Turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to get the lowdown on what happened fill in the gaps as to why he had to leave under those conditions. Acts 17.5 But the Jews becoming jealous. Can you understand why they were jealous? Before, came in, before Paul came into town, they were the only, they were the only game in town. There was no one else, and they had all of the um, the attention. Uh, they loved to walk through the streets with the little bells on their garments dangling, and the uh, people would um, they would acquiesce to them. They would they had uh, they were considered to be uh, dignitaries. Uh, they were looked up to, and now you have someone coming to town. They're saying something altogether different. People are paying attention to them, and they're hacked. They don't like it. They don't get the attention that they used to. And besides, as far as these Jews are concerned, they're unbelievers. They think that they're heretics, teaching things that aren't true. They've been—they felt very secure. Well, we've been teaching what has been the standard text for. 1,500 years, now we got these upstarts coming in town and upsetting everyone and saying things that just simply aren't so. Nobody's ever said these things before. And Paul couldn't go to the New Testament and say, well, look. Look right here. You can see what it's all about. The New Testament hadn't been canonized yet. hadn't even been completed. So you can see there was a lot of animosity towards these upstarts. They weren't like the Bereans who I know Paul had to when he went into these synagogues and he started teaching and he went there first every time. And they started being upset with him. I bet you he said a hundred times or more, turn to the text. Turn to the Scriptures. Let's see what the Scriptures say. But just like today, there are so many people who aren't really interested in what the Scriptures say. They know what they believe. They don't know why, but they know what they believe, and don't confuse me with what the scriptures say. Surely you have talked to people like that. In fact, whenever you're having a disagreement with someone, you say, "Let's turn to the scriptures." How many times? Oh, well, no, we don't want to argue over scripture. (laughs) Have you ever heard that? Let's not go to the scriptures. Well, where else do you go for truth? I've had that happen. I don't know how many times. I'm not trying to argue. I'm just trying to clarify. Let's go to the Scriptures and let the Scriptures decide who's right or who's wrong. Or maybe we're both wrong. Why don't we go to the Scriptures and let the Scriptures say? And they didn't want to do that. All they wanted was their pound of flesh from Paul and his companions. And once that starts, once the emotions kick in, and it's like a a mob, and they are high on adrenaline, and they are emotional, they're not thinking at all. They're, they're, they're just carried away in this mass of people who are, who are angry. And that's what they were facing. That's why they had to leave. So, in verse 5, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. What do you think they had in mind if they would have found these missionaries in Jason's house? Do you think they were just going to take them out and give them a good talking to? I think not. I don't know that they had any hanging going on then. Certainly if they had a rope, And it was in later times they would have been strung up. That's what they had in mind. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. So they couldn't find Paul. And so they drag out an innocent person that they knew had befriended Paul. And what did they do? They got some... Evil men, wicked men from the marketplace. In other words, they got guys who were probably gangsters. They got guys who loved violence. People who would lie for them to try to make their case. These are religious people doing this. These were the Jews who were the the leaders of Judaism. And look what they have stooped to. Of course, they would even be worse when they would have false accusers that would bring accusations against our Lord. They would mock Him. They would actually, in court, all of them were illegal, would buffet Him, beat him hit Him right in the face. This is done by religious people. That's why I don't like to wear the label of a religious person because Christianity is not a religion. That needs to be straightened out. You all, I think you all know how to do it. So they drag him out and they said they've upset the world. And Jason was welcomed. And Jason has welcomed them. That they're, they're, this is an accusation. He had welcomed these guys that upset the world. And they all, contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the and the city authorities who heard these things. When they had received a pledge from Jason, Jason and the others, they released them. What did What did Jason do? That was a crime. Nothing. He helped some apostles. He befriended some apostles, and that was enough for him to be dragged into the court. And it looks like the only way he was going to be released was to receive a pledge. And that pledge, no doubt, was like a bond. He had to pay so much money. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived they went to the synagogues of the Jesus. <laughs> ah they had to leave by night. Thessalonians' believers were just trying to save their life. And so when we go back here now to First Thessalonians chapter two and verse sixteen, we're still in sixteen. Verse 17. <clears throat> yeah, verse 17. Having been taken away from you, torn from you, now you've got the facts. This is how uh, they had to leave town. At night, secretly. So what they're saying is, let's look at verse 17. But we, brethren, haven't been taken away, torn away from you in the middle of the night. For a short while. Let's look at that for a moment. It's not clear whether Paul ever got to see his beloved flock again face to face. But it really didn't matter because he knew he would see them again in heaven, and that would be in a short time. Doesn't that speak to us also? Doesn't this give us comfort for loved ones that have died, that have gone on to be with the Lord? or maybe loved ones that are getting really old, or maybe infirm, maybe they have a disease and you, you just kind of know that the time might be short with them here on earth. It's a comfort to know that He said, I'm only going to be away from you for a short while. And I looked, I wasn't able to find anything that was definitive that said that He ever saw him again. When He started missionary trip, it's, I think it's in Acts 17, it says that he went through that area again, but it doesn't say anything about him stopping at Thessalonica. There's just no comment on it. So I, I, there's no way of knowing. So when he says he's, he, he's taken away from them for a short time, do you get the jest there? He's not saying that I have planned on my calendar, I'm going to see you in a month. He didn't know whether he was ever going to see him again. And we don't know whether, they, whether he did or not. And then he says in person, in person, the word here, person, in the Greek is prosopon, P R O S O P O N. It's a noun, it's a dative, singular, neuter. And it means literally the to part towards, at, or around the eye. That's what it means, literally. Hence, the face, countenance, presence, or person. In other words, they could no longer enjoy each other face-to-face. There's nothing like seeing loved ones face-to-face, is there? Now we have the electronics, and we can talk over the phone. You can even, on the computer now, you can see the person and talk and see the person from a distance. But it's not the same as being face to face and being able to touch them and hug them and, and, and really interact. So he says, I don't know if I'm going to be. He, he says that having been taken away from you for a short while, and now it's just kind of a break. It's just kind of like in a parenthesis type things. He says, they've been taken away in person. In other words, you can't see them face to face. But then he says, not in spirit. And this literally means not heart. In other words, his heart was still with them. He's still with them in spirit. They they were removed from each other physically, but not in spirit. The Thessalonian believers remained in the thoughts of these great Bible teachers, and that's what he's telling them. You know, that's something that no one can take from you. I don't know what lies ahead for us. None of us know exactly what's going to head, what's going to be ahead. but if we're ever torn away from loved ones, whatever the circumstances may be, there's one thing that no one can take from you and that's what's in your heart, what's in your soul. not only the Bible doctrine but your fondness and your love for someone else. And that's something he's trying to convey here also. He says maybe they could take us, maybe they could hinder us to where we can't be face to face, but there's one thing they will never do, and that is be able to remove you from our hearts, from our spirit. We are still together in spirit. He says we're all the more eager with great desire to see you, to see your face. And there's our old friend. <laughs> spudanzo. It's a verb, it's the airest active indicative. It means to be eager, zeal, diligence. Those who have spudanzo towards the word also have spudanzo towards fellowshipping with other believers. Isn't that true? It's that esprit de corps. It's that bond that positive believers have to each other. And I'd rather fellowship. I'd rather be around and socialize with positive believers than anybody else in this world. Period. And that includes family members that are negative. There's a very special bond between a pastor and his congregation. After all, we are talking about communicators of the Word and they are expressing their affection for those that they've taught. So there's a very special bond between a pastor and his congregation. Spiritual family ties can be much closer than physical family ties. Positive volition between believers is an extremely powerful force that brings believers together and keeps them together. Maybe not in person, but certainly in spirit. Now, I'm going to talk to somebody that's not here tonight. I'm going to talk to people that I very rarely do and address them personally to the ones that I've never met, to the ones that hear this over the Internet. Some of them I've never seen. Some of them I see every once in a great one. And I just want to let them know that my love for them is the same as it is for those that I see. And I might not be with them face to face on this earth, but I'm certainly going to be face to face with them in heaven. And that... um, What draws me to them and that affection that I have towards them is the same affection that I have towards you that I can see, that I have the privilege of being face-to-face with. But for those that are listening to this on a CD or those who may be seeing this on a DVD, you can see my face, and sorry about that, but... (laughs) I can't see yours, but one day I'm going to see you face to face. And what a day that's going to be. So the the affection that a, a pastor has for his congregation goes not only for those that he sees face to face, but also those faithful ones that are learning and growing from his ministry. and They are a great blessing. So I just thought I would include that. 1 Thessalonians chapter two verse eighteen. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. I like that word, thwarted. God, what's that cat, uh, Sylvester? <laughs> thwarted. <laughs> you kind of have to play Sylvester to say that one. Thwarted. Didn't we see a cartoon of him crying? Yeah, Friday night, the movies we saw, Sylvester, were pretty neat. Satan loved to see believers discouraged, depressed, lonely, and downhearted. He knew if Paul was able to see his beloved flock face to face, they would be an encouragement and be full of joy and thanksgiving, and that is what he did not want. And Satan does have a measure of power and freedom. In this phase of the angelic conflict, the Bible says that he is the ruler of this world and God gives him a certain amount of latitude. There's certain things he can do and certain things he can't do. Remember when he was talking to Satan about Job? He said, Job, you can do this, you can do that, you can do all these things, but you cannot take his life. So there's boundaries that are set. When the angels procreated with the daughters of men, the banah ha- elohim this is referring to angels, they stepped outside the rules of engagement in this conflict and God severely punished them for it. Those who were responsible still cool their heels in a dark place called Tartarus. And they will remain there until God is ready to dispense with their ultimate conviction, which will be tossed into the lake of fire. So Satan does have power. And he had the power to uh, bring about circumstances where Paul was not able to see them face to face. Can you imagine what, what joy they would have to see each other, embrace one another, Talk about old times and what thing, what what's been going on. It would be a great encouragement and joy for them, and that's not what Satan wants. And God allowed him to do that, but Paul had the intestinal or in, in the the strength inside, the doctrine of his soul was going to carry him. That's why he said, "You're still in my soul." He can't take that away. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Oh, this is this is a beautiful verse. I'll tell you what. This, this this brings what he's saying and is elevating his affection to them to a crescendo. He is about to talk, he's going to express the ultimate now. He says, For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming. Uh, Let's look at this. This is beautiful. First of all, he says, For who is our hope? Here Paul gives them the highest expression of His love. What does hope have to do with? Hope has to do with confidence about something in the future. In other words, they were an integral part of Paul's Personal sense of destiny. Can you give someone a higher compliment than that? He's saying, he's saying, you you are our hope, our confidence. You're, he's saying, you Thessalonians believers that I didn't get to stay very long with, that I really miss and I agonize. I'd love to see you face to face. You are part of my personal sense of destiny. I anticipate seeing you in eternity. That means what? They are very important to Paul. Anytime someone is part of your personal sense of destiny, it is a sign of great honor and importance. Then he says, Our joy. For who is our hope? Our joy. Hope has to do with something in the future, but joy refers to something in the present as well as in the future. The joy that comes from giving the gospel to someone who accepts it is the one of, is one of the greatest joys you'll ever experience. There's also joy of fellowshipping with them in time and then the ultimate of fellowshipping with them in glory. If you've never experienced the joy of giving the gospel to someone, and seeing them accept it and recognize for the first time ever what life is about and that they possess eternal life because of God's grace. And you had the honor and privilege of giving them, giving them that information? It's a joy you can't even hardly express. I was talking to someone this very Sunday, this last Sunday. And they were they were explaining to me about witnessing to someone and what a treasure it was and how Uh, What an honor it was. And the joy that comes from doing that. That's what he's talking about. They were his joy. People think of joy of getting a new car, a new home, a new job, whatever trinket that is going to uh, keep their attention for a little while. And They think that brings joy. No, that's not joy. That's cotton candy. It rots your teeth. Real joy are the things that are invisible and last forever. And that's the joy that he's talking about. And they were it. Now look, he goes on. He says, our crown of exaltation. He says, you are our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation. He put it in the in the, in the context of a sentence, but he's essentially telling them that's what they are. Now you have the crown here, which is Stephana S-T-E-P-H-A-N-O-S. It's a noun, nominative singular masculine. Not used of kingly crown, of the kingly crown, but of the crown of victory in games of civic worth, military valor, nuptial joy, festival gladness, woven of oak, ivy or myrtle, olive leaves, or flowers, used as a wreath or garland. I got that from Spiros Zodiatis. Complete word study dictionary. So it's it's like what you've seen in the games of the. Uh, I don't think they they weren't called Olympic games. They were called some of them were called the Isthmus games, and they would have this wreath that would go on their head, and it was for victory. It was a reward. Now get this. He's saying they were his crown. His reward. Can you, can you give someone a higher honor than saying, You are our hope. You are our joy. You are our crown of exaltation. This is the highest when it comes to showing affection. This verse does not specifically state that believers will receive a crown of exaltation for giving the gospel to unbelievers. It's an expression of the deep love and appreciation Paul had for his converts. He considered them to be his crown, his reward. See, he was talking to positive believers. And Paul knew that there was going to be a time, or there is going to be a time, where he is going to stand before Jesus Christ, And I I can't prove it unequivocally, but I think that when a believer stands before Jesus Christ to be evaluated, I think that his pastor, his or her pastor, is going to be standing by the side, and he's either going to be very proud or he's going to be disappointed. And he's saying essentially, "You're my crown, you're my reward." Do you get what he's saying? He's not saying that he's wanting this crown. He says, I already have it. You're my reward. And in the future, if indeed when they stand before Jesus Christ to be evaluated and they receive a crown, Paul is saying, that's it. That's my crown. You are my crown. Do you understand how loving and the capacity of the, of Paul to express his affection in this way? I've never heard anybody be able to express their affection in such a way. He says, Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? See, he's 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 giving this all in the in the sense, in the context of being questions, but really they're not questions because you know that the answer, yes, they are. They are his his Hope, his joy, his crown. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? One thing this verse demonstrates. Well, let's see. Y'all probably already saw this, but I'm going to ask you anyway because I was going to put it in, in the form of a question. That verse is expressing a doctrine, a very important doctrine. Do you see what it is? Did you already see the note? Look at it again. Let me get up here where it is so you can see it. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? What doctrine is that substantiating? It's a fundamental, very important doctrine. Well, the rapture, yeah, that's part of it. It's not the one I had in mind, but it's certainly expressing that. Who said it? It, well, yeah, it, eternal security, eternal life, eternal security, right. There's no doubt they're going to be there. Do you see that? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is coming. What coming is he talking about? He said it's the rapture. The whole idea, is it, there's no question whether they're going to make it or not. He's, he's writing this to believers who are still physically alive you understand that which means they continue to have the potential and they not only the potential but they did sin right but he in saying this is saying there is zero potential that they're not going to be in the rancher right, sure. you got that I don't know if you see it or not they're go- he said, you're going to be with me at the rapture, essentially, what he's doing, or he's coming with it. Even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, who is going to be, who and only who, are going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns? Who? Believers only. What kind of believers? Raw family, church age believers, and that was them, and there was no question they can't do anything to lose their salvation, or he couldn't make such a statement. If indeed you can lose your salvation, how could Paul make such a statement like that? Yeah, well, <coughs> well, the word is Alpha And I probably, you know, I've said this a hundred times to y'all about hope is not like hope you win the lottery. No, it's absolute confidence. And he's confident here. Now all these are put in question form, but it's just the way that he's writing it. There's no question about any of it. They are going to be there in the presence of Jesus Christ when he returns, which means they have to have what? Eternal security. What if one of them fornicated, one of them committed adultery, one of them committed murder? Whatever happened, it doesn't matter. How do I have this written up here? One thing this verse demonstrates is the doctrine of eternal security. Paul was not concerned that any of them would be missing at Christ at Jesus Christ's return at the rapture. Their eternal destiny was secure. What a wonderful day it will be when we get to see our Savior, our family, our friends, and maybe even those whom we haven't met who heard the gospel because of us. What? Have you ever thought of that? Now, I'm, hopefully, the, these messages are taped, put on CD, and sent all, essentially all the way around the world. And I hope that I will see somebody in heaven that maybe heard the gospel and will come up and say, guess what? I heard the gospel on tape number so-and-so, so-and-so, and I'm so glad that it went out. Isn't that going to be a time of joy? But what about you? Could that ever happen? Does this also pertain to you? That you, there may be people in heaven because of people that you witnessed to? Or maybe even maybe some that you don't even know are going to be there because you witnessed? How could that be? Well, it could be that you were witnessing to someone. I'm sure this has happened, no telling how many times. You're witnessing to somebody, and you're sitting there talking to this person, person A, and he's not, even, he's not even believing it. The person B over here that you don't even know is listening has just accepted Jesus Christ. You don't even know it. You were talking to this person. Maybe there's a couple of them. Maybe there's some people around, and you're giving the gospel to this person, and he's not buying it, but somebody out there in the crowd just believes in Jesus Christ. It's because you gave the gospel. How about that? That, that might very possible uh, be the case. And it's going to be wonderful to meet those people when Jesus Christ returns. You can't look them up, but I've got a very strong suspicion they're going to be looking you up. There's another way, too. When you give to this ministry... A portion of this ministry goes to supporting missionaries abroad. And that, too, is a way that you may meet someone and they might come to you and say, we sure thank you for contributing to Country Bible Church who supports missionaries and churches abroad. And I heard the gospel there, and it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been supported. Very possible. You think the gospel isn't important? Well, that ends the chapter, and we're out of time, nearly. I'm not going to start a new chapter when we only have five minutes left. Isn't isn't it great how Paul expressed himself? You know, Paul was a hard-nosed cookie. He had thick skin. He went through it all. He was he was kicked and beat and and he nearly drowned. All these things happened to him. He always had people at his at his in his face. Contending with him. And yet look how soft his heart is in expressing his affection to his beloved Thessalonian flock. That says a lot about Paul. He was able to endure all this and not become callous. That's what doctrine does for us all is give us the capacity to love in a way that we could never expect. And you'll be so close to believers who you can fellowship with, especially face-to-face. And that esprit de corps and that bond will help you have that capacity to love like Paul did. And Paul was lo- was loving like who? Like Christ did. That's the goal. That's close. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time You've given us to fellowship in Your Word. What inspiration to see the circumstances that these believers had to go through and yet remain very loving and compassionate and affectionate towards one another. We thank you that nothing can take this from us, and we do look forward to the day when we can see our Lord Jesus Christ and our loved ones that have already gone on before us and maybe even some we've never met. We thank you for this great opportunity that we still have before us and pray that you will challenge us to keep our priorities straight and take advantage of every opportunity that we have to give people the truth. We pray it in Christ's name.